Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. If you have a computer or phone in front of you, do me a favor. Do a web search for the term dairy restaurant. A dairy restaurant, for the record, is a kind of kosher restaurant that serves, well, dairy, for starters. Other stuff, too, but no meat. Many observant Jews avoid mixing meat and milk to keep kosher, so a dairy restaurant serves a really useful purpose. But like I said, look up the term on the web. If you're looking for a history on those places, what kind of food they served, you won't find much. Instead, you'll see maybe a few listings for restaurants in your area, some travel guides, but no Wikipedia page, no dictionary definition. It's almost like they aren't really a thing, or that they're lost to time. But they are a thing, or were at least. There used to be a bunch of them in New York City and in other places where first-generation Jewish immigrants came to the U.S., but cities change, people change, restaurants come, restaurants go. Ben Catcher, the cartoonist behind the wonderful, brilliant strip, Julius Knippel, real estate photographer, remembers them. He misses them. And he talks about those places in his newest book, The Dairy Restaurant. It's an illustrated history of dairy restaurants, what they served, what role they played, and what they mean to him. It's an expansive, lyrical, elegiac book with text and lots and lots and lots of graphics. And it hits on some of the themes that Catcher loves most, the ones that animated Julius Knippel and one Catcher, a MacArthur Fellowship, some time ago. The ways our lives are shaped by urban environments and the way that memories of places gone remain where those places are. All of the things that make cities magical. It's a beautiful book. I'm really thrilled to talk with Ben Catcher. He's truly a hero of mine. Let's get into our interview. Ben Catcher, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm such a fan of your work. Oh, thanks for uh, inviting me. So I, I want to start with a pretty plain and simple question, which is your book is a history of the dairy restaurant. It's also much more than that, but it's primarily concerned with the dairy restaurant and, and how it came to be. What is a dairy restaurant? Well, the dairy restaurants that I knew as a young person growing up in New York were uh, this kind of amalgam of the idea of a restaurant crossed with Jewish dietary law. And so they, they served a cuisine that was limited to non-meat dishes, but including fish. So milk, all kinds of milk stuffs, uh, grains, vegetables, uh, fruits, uh, baked goods, and all kinds of fish, just not meat or chicken. And this is a particular, uh, this was a particular Eastern European cuisine that they offered. Um, and, you know, they were always there. And I assumed as a child, you know, they had always existed. And then uh, as I got older, I guess in my late 20s, early 30s, they all started disappearing. And now uh, there are not too many of that particular kind left. But that's, um, 
that's what they were. They were sort of the alternative place to go if you didn't want to eat delicatessen or meat, heavy meat. We normally record our show at our office, which is across MacArthur Park from Langer's Delicatessen, maybe the best uh, Jewish deli in Los Angeles. What's the difference between the food that they serve at a deli and the food they serve at a dairy restaurant? Well, a delicatessen is uh, a meat-based cuisine, pastrami, you know, uh, brisket, uh, corned beef. And, and, you know, very early on, these were kind of, uh, there's a kind of Jewish-style restaurant that came about in the 60s that served everything, all mixed together. They weren't observant uh, Jews running those places. Not that the people who ran the dairy restaurants were, but uh, they kind of stuck to this cuisine. You know, it would be like going into um, any ethnic restaurant and seeing things on the menu that just didn't belong. So, uh, and then there's also a bit of an overlap with the history of vegetarian restaurants uh, because uh, Jewish dietary law can be seen as a kind of modified vegetarianism. Uh, that's just because, you know, dealing with meat and slaughtering animals, there's a much more elaborate kind of uh, rituals you have to go through. If you eat a piece of lettuce, it just should be clean and uh, it doesn't involve all of that. But um, yeah, and so the difference in terms of atmosphere is that, um, you know, it's, a, it's an ancient uh, idea that if meat-eating makes you more aggressive and more repetitive and more predatory and milk-eaters with a more mild-mannered, uh, ruminative kinds of people. And, you know, in, in Yiddish, there are all these expressions, uh, you know, bleiben auf der milchtika bank, and that means some, the person who didn't really enter the world. They just stayed on the dairy uh, bench or table. And, uh, you know, and if you wanted to uh, make a, de- a business deal with someone, that would be machen fleischig. You know, let's have a drink. Let's, let's get down to meat eating. <laughs> so these are ancient... Um, Ancient differentiations, you know, a, a, a delicatessen smelled of, uh, of roasting meat and uh, poultry and chicken fat, and a dairy uh, smelt of uh, frying butter and sweet fish. So, These restaurants uh, rose partly out of Jewish dietary law and, uh, you know, relatively recent Jewish immigrants from Europe who were looking for a place to eat that adhered to it. They also have a kind of a deep connection with end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century ideas about food purity and health food. What was the relationship between those ideas and these restaurants? Well, I didn't know anything about this worldwide history of dairy-based restaurants when I started thinking about uh, writing this history. Um, but it, it turns out that everywhere 
in the world that there were restaurants or at least these kind of uh, semi-public uh, eating places, there were restaurants oriented toward dairy and milk, milk products. And, and so if you look back at, at history in uh, France, there were the, the cremerie that became a kind of restaurant. There were the uh, Milchhallen in Germany and Austria. There were these Milchzania in Poland. Um, these were places that one of, well, one of their specialties was fresh milk. And this is before you know, electronic refrigeration and, um, and fast transport of milk. And so these places claim to have connections with dairy farms. And so they could provide uh, a fresh glass of milk or cream and a few dairy-based dishes. Nothing in terms of a menu to do with the, the Jewish dairy restaurant because they were not run by observed, no, they were not run by observant Jews or considering Jewish dietary law. They'd have ham sandwiches on the menu also. So um, this, uh, this um, interest in uh, fresh milk and pure milk, I mean, there was a pure food movement in the, the uh, late uh, 19th century. There was a lot of food adulteration and some of these restaurants claim to offer purer food or cleaner food or, but uh, the, the, I think the impulse that I sort of traced behind all of these places was something I just call the pastoral impulse, wanting to go back to this kind of um, pre-industrial world where you could get pure food. And, uh, you know, in the book, I trace it back to the Garden of Eden and that impulse, at least in Western culture. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you imagine the world of the late 19th century and early 20th century as people were starting to live in cities rather than on farms. On farms, people had direct access to their food, so they knew exactly what it was. In cities, there were intermediary steps, and, you know, like the rise of white bread, for example, is basically, as I understand it, I'm not a food historian, but is basically because uh, people wanted to buy the whitest bread they could because a lot of the bread was being made with sawdust mixed with the flour. <laughs> and yeah. if if your bread was white, it proved that there wasn't sawdust in it. You know what I mean? And having yeah. a, having a gleaming white restaurant that looks like a healthful dairy farm that looks like a place where the milk is coming from the cows in a sanitary environment, which was so important because um, the milk, adulterated milk, it could make you very sick, um, was like a, you know, it was the same kind of impulse, that impulse to avoid, <laughs> avoid the possibility of sawdust in your bread. Yeah. Milk is an interesting substance. It's a perfect uh, medium to grow tuberculosis, uh, bacilli, and other, you know, pathogens in. And, it, you know, it, it could be traced, milk uh, sickness and milk, uh, all and these other diseases could be traced back to adulterated or diseased milk. But it was also um, part of a culture 
of the milk cure and where milk drinking was sort of limiting your your dietary intake to a while just to milk or this first food, you know, the, the first thing people eat as children would have a curative effect. And it, it, ideally it should be milk from a certain place on the, uh, in the Alps in Switzerland. And that started the whole industry of these health uh, resorts in um, all over Europe. Uh, the milk cure, there were grape cures. There were all kinds of uh, cures where you try to uh, fine tune somebody's uh, dietary um, intake so that you could cure them of whatever they were suffering from. Are there still dairy restaurants in New York? Well, since it's a worldwide phenomenon, the definition is constantly changing. And now in, uh, in New York and in other uh, places where there are numbers of Jews, there are these things called um, kosher pizzerias where they'll have basically an Italian menu. Maybe they'll have a few remnants of Eastern European food like knishes or potato kugel. Uh, and then there's another kind of uh, upscale dairy restaurant that you'll see in um, orthodox uh, neighborhoods, uh, which offers world cuisine. I mean, sushi can be served in a dairy restaurant. So, uh, you know, it, it can open up to other cuisines, not just the, the kind of uh, food that I knew in those, uh, the dairy restaurants of the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. You grew up with a dad who ran an apartment building, which he eventually turned into a commune. Um, well, he tried. It wasn't <laughs> sort of in his hands to do it. It was in the hands of the people he wanted to sort of give this to. And it was, that was not terribly successful. But he was one of the... Uh, these people involved in this, the Yiddish end of what's called communism, you know, with a small C, because uh, the uh, International Workers' Order had a Yiddish language division. They published a newspaper, the Freiheit. They had all kinds of literary clubs and musical clubs. It was the summer camps. It was kind of a whole complete cultural world. And, you know, somewhere behind it all was this ideal of uh, a classless society, you know, uh, and maybe the end of private property. And But most of the people, I mean, at least according to some historians who were in this IWO, were not members of the American Communist Party. You know, they were small business people. They were workers. Uh, they were all kinds of people. I mean, I, when I hear stories about people joining the American Communist Party, it's not something I was familiar with for my father because it was more of a, an ideological um, connection with this idea. It happened to be uh, being played out in the Soviet Union at that time. And so there was a lot of interest in that experiment when communists, you know, especially Jew, these Yiddish communists could 
clearly differentiate in their mind behind between the bureaucracy of you know the Soviet Union and the economics of the Soviet Union. There were two that you could divide them in your mind, I guess, and say one is really something we should be aiming for, and the other is becoming corrupt like any uh, bureaucracy can become corrupt. We'll finish up my interview with Ben Catcher after a short break. When we return, Ben is a lifelong New Yorker who loves to walk around his great city. He'll tell us the first place he plans to go when his hometown opens up again. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's Guy Raz from NPR's How I Built This. And each week on the show during this unprecedented crisis, I'll be asking some of the top founders and builders how they're dealing with the economic impact of the coronavirus and hear about some of the ways they're pivoting to fight it. Subscribe or listen now to How I Built This. You wept as we crafted the tragic tale of Jar Jar, a Star Wars story. Yeah. Dude, like he forgives Darth Vader. Lisa <laughs> still love you, yeah. Annie. <laughs> you gasped out loud at the shocking twists of Face Off 2. Face is wild. He takes his kid's face. What? <laughs> We're writing an entire screenplay week by week on Story Bricks Season 2, Heaven Heist. Hey folks, Freddie Wong here with some exciting news about Story Break, the writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have one hour to spin cinematic gold. We're shaking up our format by turning Heaven Heist, one of our favorite ideas we've ever come up with on the show, into a full screenplay. Heaven Heist is an action comedy about a crew of misfit gangsters robbing the celestial bank of heaven. Think of Coco meets Point Break. Join us as we write this crazy movie scene by scene and get an inside look at the screenwriting process on our podcast Story Break every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ben Catcher. He's a cartoonist and a MacArthur fellow. He's got a great new book out called The Dairy Restaurant. It's a visual history of kosher dairy restaurants. Catcher also created one of my favorite comics of all time, Julius Knippel, real estate photographer. Here's a clip from the audio version of the strip, which aired on NPR in the 1990s. Ben provides the narration. Actor Jerry Stiller plays the titular character. In this clip, Knippel and his new friend Samson Kohler are spending the day delighting in their favorite pastime, riding New York City department store escalators. The wooden treps mill in the rear of the Leakaran Hotel. Uh, they don't build them like this anymore. <laughs> smooth, smooth as butter. <sighs> to walk ahead and feel the combined force of one's foot meeting the rising tread. The high speed of fear in the lobby of 527 Mycia Avenue. Whoa! Hold on to your hats! We must be doing 50 miles an hour! Or to induce a moment of giddy stasis by walking up or down escalator. <laughs> While a few imagined that they might someday win the sponsorship of a famous manufacturer and continue riding on a professional basis. I could do six months of the year in New York. Julius Knippel is, which was your very long-running comic strip that was collected into a number of books, is concerned with this kind of underlayer of like the ephemeral world of cities and buildings businesses with weird names that may or may not have gone out of business 20 years ago things like that and i wonder what it's like to be in new york 
now in 2020, uh, out, maybe outside of the context of the, uh, the current not going outside rules, but uh, to be in New York in, let's say, 2019 and be in an environment where so much of the city, especially Manhattan, is so shiny compared to what it was like even just 20 years ago. Well, it's incredibly boring if you knew another version of the city. I mean, it's, it's a ba- basically a bank, a drugstore drug chain, a chain coffee shop. I mean, it's the mauling of the city. It's, uh, you may as well be in a shopping mall in a lot of Manhattan. I mean, you, you know, you have to sort of head pretty far uptown to get the... Uh, semblance of a neighborhood that's not completely chain stores. So yeah, so yeah, it's incredibly boring. I mean, there are more interest, you know, the boroughs, things still go on in the boroughs. So I love to go out to Brooklyn. And I grew up in Brooklyn. So I, I would go out there or parts of Queens. Uh, but uh yeah, this impulse that I'm talking about, you know, endlessly move yourself up um, economically and, and socially is kind of, yeah, it's ruined large parts of the city. I, uh, I have a fashion website and sometimes people will ask me why I like buying thrift store clothes so much and it's something that I had never examined for myself because I had just done it since, you know, my, my mom used to work at a store in a fancy neighborhood where there were fancy thrift stores and that's where most of my clothes came from. So it was just sort of my whole life. But I I, I thought about it because, you know, sometimes people will say like, well, how can you wear, how can you wear whatever? Someone else's shoes. That's gross. And it is gross. So I, will, I grant them that. <laughs> However... <laughs> There is something too, and it's something that I recognize in in Julius Knippel, the idea that when something has had a life before it came into your life, whether it's a storefront that you're walking past uh, or, you know, a pair of trousers that you buy at a thrift store, um, you maybe can infer some things about that life, but you also are telling yourself a story about it and there is a sense of there's a sense of um uh, of possibility and magic in creating that story um or guessing at what it might be right yeah i mean the the other thing you'll you'd notice if you read this gigantic list of 200 you know vanished dairy restaurants is that there was a moment when you could open up a very eccentric kind of restaurant and nobody would say, why are you doing it like that? And, you know, <laughs> everyone was different. It was somebody's whim. This is how I want to set up my counter. They'd have a restaurant supply company build it to their specifications. And so, I mean, the idea of a chain coffee shop like Starbucks, I mean, it's just the death of invention. I mean, how could somebody with that much uh, money not want to reinvent every store he opens? It's just the utter, it's this, uh, 
So yeah, that's the argument. Uh, the upper middle class, well, and the very wealthy, uh, become somehow uh, very unambitious in their thought patterns. I mean, you could say it just makes them stupid. They don't want to think about this. They think that's the solution. That's what every Starbucks should look like. And, uh, you know, nothing could be more boring. I go, I'll walk miles to avoid going into one of those places or any chain store. That just came to mind to say, sort of all over New York. Yeah, the idea of, an, of individually invented businesses, I mean, they need to have a certain kind of rent. The whole, you know, economy has to collapse for that to happen. And, uh, you know, maybe it will. I doubt it in this moment because uh, the, uh, the wealthiest corporations were just given this gigantic bailout. And I, I think a lot of small businesses that's still around, that's just gonna, they won't be able to uh, endure a couple of months being closed, not doing business. So. But anyway, but, you know, in the 50s, there were na- whole uh, neighborhoods in Manhattan, the, the, the garment district and the, uh, where you could run these strange restaurants. And, uh, from them the way you, you know, your idea of a restaurant. So, uh, yeah, that's something uh, that I kind of miss. When we're going outside again, what are the places that you think you would most like to spend some time? Um, Restaurants. I love restaurant culture. Uh, you know, to me, it's this perfect kind of social purpose to gather together in a place. It's not a party. Nobody's, you know, footing the bill. Everybody's paying for their own meal. Uh, nobody can be excluded from the party. You come and go as you like. You eat what you want. You know, the invention of the menu lets you choose what you want to eat. Yeah, so I'll be... Um, I have dream, I'm dreaming about restaurants, invented restaurants. It's really strange. I kind of I really miss. Uh, yeah, that's something I miss. Well, Ben, I'm so grateful to you for taking this time. I love the book, and I I am really a, a huge fan of your work for for many 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 years, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. It's nice to get I'm to talk to you. I'm wondering who is buying all my books. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Ben Catcher, his new book, The Dairy Restaurant, is available for purchase now. It's absolutely beautiful, an expansive, meandering story that starts in the Garden of Eden, literally in the Garden of Eden, and proceeds from there. Uh, You can also find uh, new and secondhand compilations of his other comic, Julius Knippel, Real Estate Photographer, which is... Uh, one of the most beautiful things I have ever read. I've got them all, and I, I love them absolutely to death. They they capture what is beautiful and amazing about living in a city, the sort of ghosts that we live with and the uh, stories imagined and otherwise. Uh, they're really wonderful. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently being produced out of the homes of myself and the other employees of Maximum Fun Incorporated in and around the Los Angeles area. Here at my house, the most exciting thing that happened this past week was a delivery of hams from Father's Country Hams. Always exciting, but particularly exciting when you're not leaving the house very much. Uh, Thanks to Father's Country Hams of Bremen, Kentucky. Uh, They didn't give them to me for free. I I bought them. I just, you know, I got all the cracklings and ham and bacon and biscuits. And, oh, man, I got to go eat. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We had help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling at Maximum Fun. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we have so many interviews in our back catalogs. I talked with Zach Galifianakis about his part in The Hangover. He had a very different perspective on how the movie changed his life. You can listen to that conversation at our website, MaximumFun.org. If you're a fan of comics, we've interviewed many, many comics creators, many of the best uh, on Bullseye over the years, from Art Spiegelman to Dan Klaus, Lisa Hanna-Walt, the great Linda Berry, Adrian Tomine, all kinds of cool people. Uh, You can find all those also on our website, MaximumFun.org, or in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're at Bullseye on Twitter, so go follow us there. You can search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on Facebook. And all the interviews on this show are on our YouTube channel, so you can go grab them, share them there, uh, subscribe there if that's how you uh, prefer to enjoy radio interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.